Welcome. Merry Christmas. We have, uh, what is it, three days until Christmas? Is that, I just can't believe it. That is so amazing, and I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. And, um, you know, peace, that's our Advent theme, is peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You know, Christmas is a season of giving gifts, and the greatest gift ever given was the gift of Jesus. And um, it says this in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so amazing that we have peace, not just a peaceful feeling, but that our relationship with God is right because of Jesus. And that's a peace that actually impacts everything in life because we are right with the God who holds everything in his hands, who's in control of everything. And so we trust him, not just for our salvation, but for everything in life. And one of the amazing things is I love this, Romans 15, may the God of peace be with you all. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And we just need to remember that peace comes from God through Jesus. Now, one of the things we're going to see this morning, so we're going to be looking at the most popular verse in the Bible, the one everybody knows. And uh, let me just ask you, what is it? Okay, it's John 3, 16. That's right. And if, you, if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that theme throughout our, all, of our, all of our Christmas messages in, De- in the month of December. For God so loved the world that he spoke. He spoke to us in Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave spiritual light through Jesus. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave us grace and truth. And all of that is, of course, in Jesus. Our theme, our title this morning is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus himself, which is how we got all those things. We've been saying the same thing for four weeks, but um, that is just so amazing. And then on Christmas Eve, we will talk about, we'll just read the historical account of what actually happened when Jesus came. So we've been thinking theologically about the coming of Jesus. And so on Christmas Eve, we will actually look at the historical account of that. Now, um, I don't know if you guys know, um, if you were to guess, what is the most popular day um, that people go to church? Like what's, which one? Okay, it's Easter. You got it. Do you know what number two is? Christmas Eve. That's right. So number one is Christmas. Number two is Christmas Eve. And since we're in that season, I figured we should be actually studying the most popular verse in the Bible, don't you think? Um, John 3.16. The Bible has 31,086 verses. The ESV. It has 31,086 verses. And the one that everybody knows is John 3.16. So that's where we're at this morning. And uh, John 3.16, everybody knows. Did you know John 3.16 is printed, that, that reference is printed on the bottom of all the in and out cups? How many of you guys have uh, turned an in and out cup over and you see John 3.16 printed there? Um, Devin Jones, anybody know who he is? He drives a monster truck. <laughs> anyway, he has John 3.16 printed on the side of his truck. Keith Urban, do you know who he is? All right, we got some country music people here. Um, and his hit song... John Cougar, John Deere, and John 3.16. So he puts that reference in there. Charles Schultz wrote the reference into his uh, Peanuts comic strip. And in 2009, 
Uh, this is one of my favorite football players, but in 2009, Tim Tebow, he put the black stuff under his eyes and then put John 3.16 on it. It's kind of an amazing story. Did you know that during that game, um, that 94 million people Googled John 3.16? Crazy. You know, they just saw it. They're like, what is that verse and what does it say? I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I'm going to anyway. So three years later, I, I, just, I edited this out. Now I'm putting it back in. But um, three years later, um, Tebow's on the, on the Broncos. And they're playing against the Steelers. And in that game, the, the people must have been talking about it or something. But so three years later, they play that game. And Tim Tebow throws for like 316 yards. There was like, like 316 was like an eight or like all kinds of stats for that game. And 91 million people in that game Googled John 316. I'm just crazy. And so when you think about why is John 3.16 so popular? And I think it's right that it's so popular. It comes in, in the book of John. The disciple wrote this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's so popular because it summarizes the gospel message so powerfully. It says it so well. But as we think about John 3.16, it is a summary of the gospel, but it's a summary and it comes in the context of the whole Bible. So John 3.16 is not by itself. We understand it in everything that the Bible says. And John chapter 3 verse 16 comes in the chapter of John chapter 3. And so we need to think about also, like, what's the big picture of what's being stated in John 3? And so one of the things that happens with really popular verses is a lot of times we read that verse but we don't think about what comes before it. We don't think about what comes after it. And sometimes it's like John 3.16. The truth of John 3.16 is not changed at all by reading the context of John 3. It is not changed at all by reading the context of the entire Bible. But it is so much more powerful and so much more clear when you see the context in which it's come. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. And there are three, three important things that I want you to think about. And uh, this is not just the sermon outline, but three concepts that kind of come in the whole thing. But the first one is this. For us to experience John 3.16, there's a foundational starting place. And that is that we recognize that we have a great need. That we are in trouble. And you'll see that in the context of this, that John 3.16 is such good news because we have such a serious problem. The second thing is that, you know, faith is important and faith is transforming. And you'll see that in this, you have to have genuine faith. That faith has to be placed in the right object, and that's Jesus. And the third thing is you think about this, it's we're in trouble, and because of that we submit to what God has said and we believe in Jesus, but when we do, our eternal destiny is changed. Now, in, instead of heading one direction, we end up heading another direction. And this eternal destiny, it does have to do with where we end up. It does have to do with where we spend eternity. But one of the things that we understand in the context of Scripture is that it's not just our eternal destiny that is changed. 
It is us. We are spiritually transformed. We go inside from being God's enemy to being God's friend. Did you know that everything about you changes the moment you become a Christian, the moment you put your faith in Christ? Nothing about you is the same. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us you know, uh, that Light and dark are different, right? They have nothing in common with each other. Christ and Satan have nothing in common with each other. It goes through this list and it says, also it's talking about relationships and marriage, and, but, it, but it says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the answer to that question is nothing. And so as we think about this, I don't want you to think about that in terms of somebody else, or I have nothing in common with you, but I want you to think about that in terms of yourself. To know and to think about when you became a Christian, everything about you changed. Not just your eternal destiny, but you went from being spiritually dead to being spiritual, spiritually alive. It's not that you didn't still live in the same house. It's not that you didn't go to work in the same place, but it's everything about what you value, what is important to you, um, the way that you think about things, why you do things. Everything is different if you're a Christian. There's all kinds of people who do good things. But people who do good things, they do it because it makes them feel good. They do it because they, wanna, they don't want to be a bad person. They do it because they have compassion for other people. So you'll have a lot of unbelievers who do really good things, but they don't do any of those things for the same reason that a believer does good things. See, when a believer does something good, he does it because he loves God. He does it to bring glory and honor to God. So that fundamentally changes what a person does. A person loves, a Christian loves other people, not just because they're a person, not just because you want to feel like a good person, but because when you look at that person, you understand that person is made in God's image. And God has loved me, and so I'm going to love them. And so part of Christians, everything that they do that's good, they do because they are driven and motivated by a desire to please God. So when we have the right object of faith, everything about us is changed. On the outside, it might look the same, but nothing is the same when you're a Christian. I want you to think about that today. If you've ever put your faith in Christ, if you've ever trusted Christ, and for those of us who have, we think back to the day that we were totally different. We remember the day we changed. We remember the day that everything about our motivations became different. So let's look at John chapter 3. Let's read the context of the most popular verse in the Bible. So John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. So I want to start by just zooming through the context of John. We've already had two messages on the book of John, John chapter 1. And so John 1, th 1, 1 through 3 um, talks about the nature of Jesus, how Jesus is God, how J Jesus is a part of the Trinity, and how Jesus became man and took on flesh. In John chapter 1, it goes on, and it just says, Behold the Lamb of, of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
John points at Jesus and said he came to take away sin so that we could be forgiven. And then the, the rest of John chapter 1 is John going and calling his disciples. So he calls his disciples. In John chapter 2 is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. And do you remember it's at a wedding where he turns water into wine? Remember that? His mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Can you, make some, can you fix this problem? And he turns water into wine. And then the next thing he does is he goes into the temple and he drives all the money changers out of the temple. Do you remember that? So that's kind of what's happened. And then we hit John chapter 3. And this is amazing. Have you guys heard of Nicodemus? So this is all introduction, by the way. I'll tell you when the message starts. Um, (laughs) John chapter 3, verse 1. A few observations about this. Now there was a man of, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the Jews have this ruling body. There are 70 people in it. And Nicodemus is one of the 70. So this is a very powerful religious man. There are some historical accounts that would say that Nicodemus was like the third richest person in that period of time. I don't know if any of that's true. It's not in the Bible, but that's been said. And so it says this that this man came to Jesus by night. Now that's kind of insignificant that he came to Jesus at night. In Greek, there's different ways to identify time. Like you can be talking about a specific point in time. So it was nighttime, it was like 9 o'clock at night, or it was 10 o'clock at night. So you could refer to a specific point in time. And, but that's not what's done here. What's done here is it's, the emphasis is actually not on when it is, and it's not how long he was with Jesus. It's just describing the emphasis as that it was night. Now, why is that significant? You know, I don't know if you ever have gone camping. You know, it's like, I don't think we think about night in the same way that other people think about night or the same way people have thought about nighttime in history. But, you know, when you're camping, it's like you can have a headlight and you can have a flashlight and things like that. You could walk around with a torch. That'd be a lot more work. But it's kind of hard to get around at night. And so you'll know that if you kind of leave like the city with all the street lights and car lights and all that kind of stuff. People don't travel at night. People don't do things at night. For the most part, they stay home. And so for this man to go see Jesus at night, it's kind of a significant thing. And the, the question is why? And if you think about it, the Pharisees hated Jesus. Nicodemus goes to talk to Jesus, and he goes to talk to him at night, probably because he didn't want anyone to know that he was talking to Jesus. And so he shows up at night, and it says, This this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now we understand why Nicodemus didn't want anybody to know that he was talking to Jesus because that's not how the Pharisees felt about Jesus. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. Uh, He was disrupting their system. That just happened when he throws everybody out of the temple. But Nicodemus shows up and he says, we know that you've come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he's looking at Jesus and he's just saying, I see the marks in your life that you are not just a normal person. You've come from God. And so he shows up and he says those things. We find out in John 7, 50 and 51 that all the Pharisees are getting together and they're all kind of ticked at Jesus and they're condemning him. And Nicodemus says, hey, 
um, shouldn't we actually hear what a person says before we could condemn him? So we kind of see that Nicodemus's heart is kind of different than the rest of the Pharisees' hearts. And then this is what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you guys have all heard about being born again, right? In fact, sometimes that's the way people actually ask, well, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a real Christian? And when you're trying to find out, are you just like a cultural Christian or what kind of Christian are you? When you're trying to determine if somebody's a real Christian, a lot of times we'll say, yeah, but are you born again? Are you a born again Christian? Like that's kind of a term. Did you guys know that came from John 3? Like this is where that term came from. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So born of water, there's, there's a lot of different interpretations of this, but I'm just going to tell you what mine is. Born of water, that's talking about physical birth. It's being born of flesh. It's what happens to everybody when they come into existence. They're born. But Jesus says, unless you're born of the Spirit, you can never see the kingdom of heaven. So we have to be born spiritually regenerated, spiritually made alive. Look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So basically what he says there is there's a lot of things in life that happen that we don't understand. That doesn't mean they're not true because we can see the evidence of it. We can see the proof of it. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He just says, Jesus, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you don't understand these things. So we just learned something else about Nicodemus. He wasn't just in the ruling class. He was the teacher, the religious leader that people looked up to, the the most significant teacher. And Jesus says, and you don't understand these things? Nicodemus was a very intellectual person. He'd spent the whole Old Testament, spent his whole life studying the Old Testament. He was a religious expert. And he says to Jesus, I don't understand these things. Basically, you know what he's saying? I'm the one who judges, I'm the one who decides, and this doesn't make sense to me. Um, Jesus' response is very interesting. He says this in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. What Jesus says right here to him is, you're saying it doesn't make sense and you don't understand it. And Jesus says, no, you have a rebellion problem. You're refusing to accept what I tell you. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus says this in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. You want to know what Jesus says to him? He basically says, Nicodemus, I actually don't care what makes sense to you or what you think about what I'm telling you. I'm God. 
I'm the one who's been in heaven. When I come here and I tell you the way things are, you accept that. Because you're just a man. And so Jesus starts off by saying, people need to trust me, they need to look to me, they need to submit to me. I don't submit to them. I don't answer to people. People answer to me. And it's interesting that that's what he says to the teacher of Israel. Now, I just want to say that if we're going to think about John 3.16, we have to start by understanding who is in charge, who has authority. And um, uh, one of the things I think is interesting is Jesus is never wrong. Jesus knows everything. Is there anybody else who fits in that category? Is there any person anywhere who's never wrong? Um, I think about, like, let's just talk about science for a second. Do you know that we are so incapable of understanding things in the human race? I mean, we just, we understand that. Simple things we can't understand. You know, I was thinking about that and regarding, just, let's just talk about first aid, right? Um, years ago, when I was taking first aid, I've been certified in first aid, oh man, I can't even tell you how many times, like 15 or 20. And I remember in my early years of being trained, they said under no circumstances use a tourniquet. If you, first of all, they're saying use tourniquets, and then they were saying, no, don't use tourniquets because people lose their limbs. How many of you guys ever took first aid where you're told not to use a tourniquet? You know that's different now. Um, right now they supply tourniquets for first aid kits, and they say when people get in trouble, put a tourniquet on, crank it up. And they've done some studies and realized that if you don't use tourniquets, people die. And it's better to lose your arm than to die. And so we've come up with this new technology. First of all, we said use tourniquets. Then we said, oh, wait, no, that's a bad idea. And now we're saying, no, use tourniquets. How, how about simple things like CPR? Breathing and chest compressions. Any of you guys remember that? So um, up until 2010, you were supposed to pump the chest and then do two breaths and then pump the chest and then do two breaths. In 2010, they changed that. And they say, if you're not a medical professional and if you're working on an adult, you just do chest compressions. You do not breathe. And if you do that, more people live. Either the same or more. So I just want to jump out there and say, when you talk about scientific challenges, there are things that are hard. Like is light, is it a particle or is it a wave? Speed of light. There are all kinds of things that are very complex and very challenging. And then if you were to put a, on the scale of things, things that are not that challenging, you want to know what's not that challenging? Should you breathe and do chest compressions, or should you just do chest compressions? And in 2010, we're changing our mind. That's because people are fallible, and people don't know things. But God knows things. And so that's the foundation for John 3.16. We start by just saying, I don't know. There are things I can't understand. Jesus what is the truth? And that's where we start. And so, um, that gets us to John 3.16. Okay, we just started. <laughs> that's okay, because the rest is not as long. So God has provided salvation because of his 
great love. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now, when you think about the fact that God loves you, you know, a lot of people have a wrong view about God and a wrong view about his love. People feel like God hates me. God's angry with me. God doesn't love me. And there's all kinds of of religions that are built around finding somebody that can stand between you and God, doing some things to try to be lovable to God. And what you need to understand is that Jesus says, that God says that he so loves you. And I want to say something that might sound odd at first. Jesus and and God the Father, the, the Trinity, God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Like that may sound odd. That is not why God loves you. You start in a place of God loving you. That is why Jesus was sent to the earth to die for you. God doesn't love you because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves you. There are so many people that think, oh man, in the Old Testament, God didn't love people. But now in the New Testament, God loves people. You know, that is so wrong. It's people who read the Old Testament with their eyes closed. God so loved us that he sent Jesus. Did you know that Jonah didn't preach to the Ninevites because he knew that God loved people? Did you know that? I mean, how do we miss that? It's everywhere in the Old Testament. But this is what it says. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God loves people and God loves you and you need to think about that just in your daily life think about the fact that God loves you and he loves you even when you sin if you're a Christian and you sin God doesn't stop loving you because of that think about this before God saved you he knew everything you would ever do wrong and he still chose to save you it's not like when you sin God's going oh my goodness I didn't realize that was going to happen Oh, I thought I loved you, but now I don't love you anymore. Think about what it means that God loves you. That's a foundation before, behind whatever, everything that God has done. And God doesn't just love you. God loves the world. It says here, for God so loved the world. God loves you and he loves every single person on this planet. And that's why he sent Jesus to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is unique. He is God's only son. He is the only person. He's the only person who preexisted and who is God. He's the only one who took on humanity. So God sent Jesus, and Jesus is the only way of salvation, the only appropriate object of our faith. There are not many ways to Jesus. There are not many ways to God. There is one, and it's Jesus. And by the way, there's nobody that stands between you and Jesus. Some people think, well, Jesus is our way to get to the Father. Well, let's just remember that God loves us, and Jesus is our our way to get to God. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath. But there is nothing that stands between us and Jesus. You know, no, no pastor 
No religious figure do you have to go through to get to Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus is direct. It is between you and Jesus. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is an important thing. It's whoever believes. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it was enough to pay the sins for every single person that ever lived. Nobody goes to hell because there was, there was no way for their sin to be forgiven. Jesus died for the world. But not everybody's going to be saved. There is a difference between people who are saved and people who are not saved. Not everybody ends up in heaven. It says here, but whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's how much God loves us. And if we believe, that's faith. That's trust. That's confidence. You know, there is a difference between believing something and knowing something, right? We know that. The demons believe and shudder. Um, it's very easy to know things, but to not really believe in them. Uh, think about how your diet works, right? We know that we shouldn't eat certain things. We know that we should exercise. But if we really, you know how you know when a person really believes that exercise is good for them? And that they really want to exercise? When a person really believes that, you know, because they exercise. See, for me, I, I know it. I don't necessarily believe it. I know exercise is good for me and eating, and eating healthy is good for me. But sometimes, man, I look at that cake and I just think, actually, right now, I think eating this cake is what is best for me. Or whatever else I do. Overeating, anything, yeah. So you know when you believe something, because when you believe something, you act on it. There's a difference between knowing and believing, and you have to believe. That's to place your faith, your confidence, and your trust in the person of Jesus. And here's an amazing thing. Your ability to believe is a gift from God. Acts 16, God opened up Lydia's heart. Um, the man who goes to Jesus, and Jesus says, anything's possible for those who believe. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And so even our faith is a gift that God gives us. Think about everything God has done to provide salvation for us. We've done nothing. He's done everything. Isn't that a relief? Because if you had to do something to get your salvation, you'd probably have to do something to keep it. Isn't it peaceful that you don't have to do anything to get it? You don't have to do anything to keep it? It's just God opening up your heart and you recognizing who Jesus is and trusting him. And it changes our eternal destiny. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. Those are the two destinies, perishing or eternal life. Matthew, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13. Um, he says this, actually Matthew 7 Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then he talks about religion, and he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
Jesus always said, I know the truth, and anybody who says anything different from me, they're lying. What they're saying isn't true. And, and that's the starting place for salvation is to say, who said it? Because if Jesus said it, if the people that Jesus trained said it, if the people that Jesus inspired said it, then we believe it. Anybody who says anything different is wrong. And that was the Bereans, right? They tested everything that they heard by what Scripture said. And so that's kind of the starting place. We put our faith in Christ. He provided this for us. And um, faith, he gives an illustration of it. He says, um, as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, um, the Son of Man will be lifted, talking about the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. Um, Have you guys ever seen this sign? That's a medical doctor sign. Do you see what's there? It's a post with snakes around it. You ever wondered where that came from? Do you know it comes from Numbers chapter 21? So God's leading Israel. They're wandering around and they start complaining. And they say, God, I'm impatient. I don't like what you're doing. And God says, okay, uh, I'll send some snakes to kill you guys for griping and complaining. See, some people... They forget that Jesus loves them, that God loves them, and there's other people that forget about God's holiness and his absolute rulership that is communicated in the Old Testament. But you know what? The Bible teaches both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So these, this nation of Israel, God's being gracious to them. He's being kind to them, and they're impatient. They start complaining, and God says, you're going to complain about me? You're going to complain about the person I sent? Okay, I send snakes. They bite you. You die. And so the people are dying because they complained, because they were irreverent toward God. And then God says to Moses, Moses, take a golden staff, make a golden snake, wrap it around the staff, hold it up in a high place. Anybody who's bitten by a snake and looks at that won't die. You know what God was just saying? I, I decide whether you live or die. If you trust me and if you obey me, and I'm going to make it easy, if you get bit, look up here and you're healed. And he just says, look up here, trust me, have faith in me, recognize that I'm the one who saves. And that's the analogy to Jesus dying on the cross. So God provided salvation because all of mankind is lost. Look at this, look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this is something that we need to recognize. You don't have to do anything to, to be under God's judgment. You don't have to do anything to be in trouble. You are born in trouble. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't trust Jesus, you're in trouble. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world in verse 17. Why? The world's already condemned. People are already lost. You know, it reminds me of just the way we should approach life and the way we should think about things is we just need to remember in the same way that you can't mess your kids up because they're born messed up. You know, you can't cause anybody to be lost. People are already lost. Sometimes we're so afraid that we'll say something that might offend people or I don't share the gospel. I'm afraid I might say something wrong. You can't hurt people who are unbelievers. 
They're already lost. Just try to do something to help them. Try to do something to save them. I was talking to my brother-in-law, and I was, he's a doctor, and I was just saying, do you ever get stressed out when a code blue comes in and a person's dead? And, and are you stressed out of, man, what if I do something wrong? What if I don't give them the right drugs? What if I don't do CPR correctly? And he says, no, I never worry about that at all. He's like, why? He's like, well, when a person codes, that means they're dead. So they're already dead. I can't hurt them. So I might as well try to do something to save them. So it's kind of fun. If a person's living, you could mess something up. But if they're dead, all you can do is make them better. And so he said, I'm never stressed out about code blues. I just do everything I can. And when we remember that people are in a state of being lost and that people have no hope other than to believe in Jesus, that should make us bold and confident as we share the gospel. And Jesus is the only hope. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Um, Jesus is the only way. People do also do things. So they're not just born lost. They actually live that out. We are born sinners, but then we actually sin. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what the most grievous sin is. See, some people think, well, a terrible thing, that would be killing somebody. That would be bad. Lying about people, lying about, oh, that would be terrible. Stealing things that don't belong to you, oh, that would be terrible. Hurting other people, oh, that's terrible. You know that those things are all wrong. But you want to know what the greatest sin in the universe is? The thing that makes everybody guilty before God is a failure to recognize who Jesus is, to recognize who God is, a failure to worship him properly. That is the greatest sin that every other sin flows from. You know, when you become a Christian, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says that's the thing that changes in your life. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what changes in the heart of a Christian. Everything they do is to glorify God. If you, if you get two people who get up and they both do a good thing, oh, there's a, there's a sick person. They need some help. I'm going to help them. When an unbeliever does that, there's no credit before God because they, they're not worshiping God as they do that. They're not honoring God as they do it. They're doing it to make themselves feel better. They're, just, they're doing it in the absence of God rather than to say, my act of worship is to recognize God and to obey God Romans chapter 1 talks about God's wrath being poured out on mankind. The first thing listed, because even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. God Then then later in chapter 1, it lists off all these sinful things. The very first thing listed is God says, they didn't worship me. That's why people are separated from God. They fail to honor him and give him the credit that he's due. But when people do believe in Christ, when they put their faith in Christ, um, that results in spiritual transformation. Look at John 3.20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When you put your faith in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, your eternal destiny is changed, 
but your nature is changed. You are made spiritually alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, when the Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony in Acts chapter 26, you know what he says? He says this, before I met Jesus, this is how my life was. He talks about what his life was like before, what motivated him. His life, by the way, was dominated by good works. In fact, when he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was ahead of every other Jew. I was in first place for good works. So he says, that's what my life was like before I met Christ. And he says, I count all those things in Philippians 3 as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and have a righteousness not based on my works, but based on faith in Jesus. And then he tells the king, this is how, this is how I met Jesus. I was on the road. I was on the way to kill Christians, and I saw Jesus, and he told me, what are you doing? And he talks about how he met Jesus. Now think about your life. What was your life like before you met Jesus? Who told you about Jesus? What was the circumstance in your life when for the first time you saw Jesus for who he was? And instead of this, hey, don't tell me what to do. I, I, hate, to, I hate God. I, I wish there wasn't heaven and hell. Um, I just, I, I rebel against him. I don't want to be told what to do. I'm going to come up with my own truth. Like, what was it? What happened? Who said something to you that in that moment you realized, you know what? I thought following Jesus was terrible, but I've read this, I've understood this, this person told me this, through the circumstance in my life I experienced this. Do you remember that day? I remember the day that happened. And then Paul goes on and he says, that's how I met Jesus. And then he says, since I met Jesus in Acts 26, he goes on to say, and this is what my life is like now. Do you remember that? Do you have a testimony? Because that is the heart of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. So one of the things I would say is that religion without Jesus is misplaced and it's a missed opportunity. Um, beyond that, Christmas without Jesus is a missed opportunity. Reminds me of a story that I heard about. Billy Graham shares this in his autobiography, Just As I Am. And he says he, he talks about a conversation he had with uh, John Kennedy right after Kennedy became a Christian. He says, on the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect uh, president stopped the car and he turned to me and he said, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? So President Kennedy was thinking about the return of Christ. And he says to Billy Graham, do you believe in that? And he says, yeah, I do. I most certainly do. And then he says, Kennedy asked um, Billy Graham, does my church believe in it? And he says, they have it in their creeds. And he says, really? Because they don't preach it at all. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. And so Billy Graham tells him, he says, I explained what the Bible said about the coming of Christ the first time, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then promised that he would come back again. Only then I said, um, 
are we going to have a permanent, are we, only then are we going to have permanent world peace? And Kennedy says, very interesting. We'll have to talk more about that someday. Um, a few years later, they met at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. And um, Billy Graham had the flu that day. And it says that after he gave his short talk and after the president gave his short talk, they walked out of the hotel, went to the car, and as always, at the, at the curb, he turns to him and he says, Billy, could you rise back to the White House with me? I'd like to see you for a minute. And he said, Mr. President, I've got a fever. Uh, I, I'm only weak, and I don't want to give you this sickness. Can we talk some other time? That was a cold, snowy day. He was freezing, and the president just says, yeah, of course. And you guys all know the story, right? Because he never did talk to President Kennedy again. President Kennedy was assassinated, and he left this world never completing that conversation with Billy Graham. And I just want to remind you, if, if you're sitting here today, if you've heard John 3.16, if you're thinking about your spiritual condition, this is an opportunity we are not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. And so you should think about that first and foremost for yourself. Do you know Christ? Have you experienced spiritual transformation? And if you haven't, today is the day for that. And it's through humble submission to the person of Christ and trusting what Jesus did. And it's not just for you personally. Um, this is an opportunity for the people around. So often, we're so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing. Just remember, people are already lost. And we don't want to be careless. We don't want to be uncaring. But it's far better to talk to people. Be bold in this season. Pray for people in this season. Because today is a day of salvation. Now, we don't want to miss an opportunity to communicate, to think about our own standing, or if we know the Lord, to communicate to others. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the powerfully transforming truth that you love us. Lord, that we don't have to do anything for that. You did it all in Christ. Lord, give us a sense of urgency in this season. In your name, amen.